Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Teresa Robinson. I'm on the air today with my co-host, Emily Scott, Jasmine Smith. We are recording this episode on Wednesday, March 3rd, and it will begin airing on Sunday, March 7th. How's everybody doing this week? Not bad, not bad. Yeah, I'm going. We're going. We continue to go. Um, I'm enjoying... (laughs) I'm enjoying the uh, the fool's spring that we're currently in of the the twelve you know seasons in New York. Have you guys seen right. that meme? I was talking to you guys about it earlier, but it's like there's this, and then we'll have second winter, which I think we already had, and maybe again they'll have third winter, and then like summer, and then like hell's front porch was my favorite. <laughs> I think of this, <laughs> uh, but yeah, enjoying it while I can. Yeah. I feel like in March we have hope because like the rough part of winter is done. So yeah, totally. I'm just going to bank on that. Well, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. The minute I see something pop up on a tree, I'll actually have joy. I feel like I'm still emotionally very shaped by the way the school year would break down. So like, I remember March being like, okay, spring break is coming or like some, like something is changing. Like it's almost the end of the school oh. year. We're getting there. It's sunny. And I feel like I'm going to be 78 years old still thinking like that. Or like my body is still going to be like in anticipation of like the next change or the next break or something. That's always why I liked working at higher ed. I felt like it kept me young because I was on these cycles, you know, (laughs) with the young people. Yeah. But I'm definitely happy about the more sunlight. Absolutely. We all need more sunlight in our life for sure because... These winter days can be short and long in the same breath. So, all right, cool. So this week we will be discussing uh, attacks on Asian people in New York City, the Republicans' efforts to introduce more voting restrictions, improvements in the Mississippi River, and crop loss in Australia due to lack of farm workers and other international entanglements, if you will. So let's go ahead and kick off today's episode with our local news segment. Jasmine, what do you have for us today? Okay, so this was a, the latest instance was really shocking in the news. I didn't watch the video. It was pretty graphic. Um, But I'm going to read to you, uh, the article was written by Chaz Danner for NY Mag for the Intelligencer. Um, The last update for this article was from Sunday, February the 28th, and there was also an update um, today, March 3rd, about the charges against the attacker. The title of the article is No Hate Crime Charges in Random Stabbing of Asian NYC Man. A young Brooklyn man who allegedly stabbed and critically wounded a 36-year-old Asian man on Thursday night in Manhattan's Chinatown has not been charged with a hate crime. Cops initially indicated that they did not suspect the attack was a hate crime on Thursday. The NYPD then appeared to reverse course and said there would be hate crime charges on Friday, but the Manhattan District Attorney's Office didn't file any on Saturday. The victim, who has not been identified, was admitted to Bellevue Hospital in critical condition following the attack and was still hospitalized in critical condition on Saturday. So that's as of... um, February the 27th. Surgeons removed his kidney and adrenal gland gland, in order to save his life. 
At first, it wasn't clear if he lived, but as of today, he's alive and recovering. So that last sentence was me, like he's still alive. But when it first happened, it looked like he might have passed away. There were a record 27 reported bias attacks against Asian residents in the city last year, which is a nine-fold increase from 2019. And both city officials and community advocates have warned that most hate crimes continue to go unreported. 18 of the cases led to arrests. Cops initially said there was no indication of bias in the 6.20 p.m. Thursday stabbing, but later upgraded charges against Salman Muflihi, age 23, to attempted murder as a hate crime and assault as a hate crime. Muflihi, who's from Brooklyn, said nothing to the 36-year-old victim as he stabbed him from behind with the eight-inch blade by the Daniel Patrick Moynihan U.S. courthouse. Moments later, he confessed his crime to security outside the Manhattan DA's office on Hogan Place saying, I just stabbed someone. Where are the police at? According to sources, Muflini told cops that he lunged because he didn't like the way the victim looked at him. Investigators believe he was emotionally disturbed. Gothamist adds that according to New York State Assembly member Yoline Line Niu, I've, I'm not sure how to pronounce their name, but it's spelled Y-U-H-L-I-N-E, last name N-I-O-U. The upgraded charges came as a result of Maflihi's prior convictions, which included an attack on an Asian American man last month. Then on Saturday, the DA's office apparently concluded there wasn't enough evidence to pursue hate crime charges, per PIX11 News. The suspect was initially arrested on charges including attempted criminally negligent homicide, criminal possession of a weapon, assault and possession of a fake ID, police said. The DA's office has charged him with attempted murder and multiple counts of assault, but they are not recommending hate crime charges, with Assistant District Attorney Adam Johnson saying Muflihi stabbed his victim, quote, for no reason at all. We are continuing to investigate and may bring additional charges if warranted, the DA's office told PIX11 News on Saturday. Over a week ago, video footage of an unprovoked assault against a 52-year-old Asian woman on February 16th in Queens went viral on social media, sparking nationwide outrage. The woman's daughter said the attack was racially motivated, but the suspect arrested for the assault was not charged with a hate crime. It was one of four attacks on Asian women in the city just that day. Such incidents, when they are reported, are only investigated as hate crimes when the attacker uses a slur, has a history of such behavior, or admits they targeted their victim because of their race, ethnicity, or identity. An analysis by Stop AAPI Hate, a national organization that tracks anti-Asian hate and discrimination, estimates that there have been more than 2,800 anti-Asian incidents nationwide mostly in California and New York, amid the pandemic. Here in New York, the spike in incidents targeting Asians prompted the formation of the NYPD's Asian Hate Crime Task Force last August, aimed at increasing cooperation and improving the strained relationship 
between the police and the city's Asian community. WNYC highlighted that tension last week. Quote, I think Asians are easy targets, says Chris Kwok, a board board member of the Asian American Federation and advocacy group for Asian communities. I think people feel like they won't fight back. People feel, oh, the police won't report and maybe Asians won't report. Um, Jumping ahead a little bit. On Monday, community leaders in Queens assembled to condemn bias attacks and highlight the heightened fears many in the Asian community have felt about being targeted. Mayor de Blasio, Congresswoman Grace Meng, and other city officials did the same on Tuesday, announcing the launch of a public awareness campaign and new city website to encourage reporting and speaking out against anti-Asian attacks and discrimination. We have already seen our members and small businesses fight the pandemic of anti-Asian hatred, Meng said, and these racist attacks have been outrageous, unconscionable, disgusting, and it must end. There was also a public rally on Saturday responding to the attacks per NBC New York. So there were hundreds of people at Foley Square to denounce the uptick in attacks on people of Asian descent, not far from where the Asian man was critically stabbed on Thursday. It's been really terrifying for our community, said Joanne Yu, executive director of the Asian American Federation. What is happening is not right. Federal, state, and and local politicians at the rally, including Mayor de Blasio, U.S. Senator Chuck Schumer, and State Attorney General Letitia James, also condemned violence against men and women of Asian descent. So if you'd like to read the full article yourself, it's uh, once again, it's at nymag.com. The intelligencer, the author is Chaz Danner. No hate crime charges and random stabbing of Asian NYC man. Wow, that's super unfortunate that people are so quick to act on things that they don't even fully understand. Like it's just it's just awful that we still live in a place where people just um misappropriate their frustrations on people. Innocent people are harmed because people just really don't know how to place their anger or what they're doing. And I mean, and pe- treating people like this is just trash overall, but it's really awful that people are affected in this way because of true misunderstandings of how things are, are messages are transmitted and no protections are really being provided for them. Yeah. And, and with the, that idea of like messages being transmitted, you know, people like Trump are out there refusing to call COVID anything other than like the Chinese virus, right? Like that's, that's the sort of language that, yeah. that, that it has, it has an impact. It has, and like, yeah. a, it's fueling these sort totally. of things. Totally. It's, it's, a, it's awful. Yeah, I didn't know what the standard was for when something is considered a hate crime. Like reading this was the first time I read. I guess it makes sense where it's saying in order for them to label it as such, they have to have evidence like the person has to use some type of racist name. And this mm-hmm. particular instance, apparently this this man, the 23-year-old, he had a history of attacking people like at random like he's been in trouble for like random attacks on people before and the investigators are saying that he seemed to be like emotionally or mentally disturbed so there's 
it's obviously like horrible and there's 100% people that are attacking people because they are Asian mm-hmm. and no other reason. But I'm also worried about, you know, I think we've talked on this show a lot about like ballooned police budgets and everything, mm-hmm. whereas like a lot of social services are being defunded. And I'm like, you know, there's also a connection with people that otherwise maybe they would be getting some kind of medical treatment or like they should be are not, or like people Mm -hmm. who maybe they would be in housing and more secure or in a more stable environment are now homeless and, Mm -hmm. you know, in the middle of a crisis, like that's going to lead to more violence as well on top of what you're saying, like with racist rhetoric and it's all, terrible it's like it's gonna lead to an uptick in violence for ideological reasons for like material condition reasons Mm -hmm. and it just it makes everybody less safe especially vulnerable people yeah absolutely and on that note too jasmine that's exactly right i was reading um an article about um it was about those that spate of stabbings that was happening on the A line um, in New York. Oh City. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and they they found the guy, and he was he was another homeless person, a houseless person. I, I apologize if I'm using terminology that's no longer acceptable. I'm not quite sure, but um, but he was another person who's in and out of the system for and mental health issues. And the article explained that. Um, there it's like direct like the the it's something like so much of the mental health care in the city is at rikers um and is at uh you know like the overloaded homeless shelters right like there is just not enough resources out there for for people who need help um safe resources and you know healthful it's really i it i i don't know what the numbers are but i i don't know there's obviously, there's definitely been an uptick, but I do wonder how much truth it is to the idea that there's certain populations that are less likely to report the incidents. And so maybe they were undercounted before. And now Mm -hmm. because we're more aware because of um, the xenophobic rhetoric, like there's more of a spotlight on people being targeted specifically for being Asian. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's really, it's horrifying. Like, like nobody should feel like you're just walking down the street minding your business and you have to be afraid someone's going to come along and like punch you out or something like that. Yeah. There's so many layers to trying to help people with mental um, issues. And, and today is so much more common, you know, than it had been previously, I think. But yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily think that more police would be the answer because it's not I don't really see them as being like preventative like the way that this happened it's like it happened so quickly like they're not going to be able to stop it from happening in the first place if someone is in that mind space they're just gonna like whoever is around they're just gonna go for it yeah it's so beyond just like a police it's it there's so many structural things in place like we've talked about Um, that needs to be addressed for sure. So yeah, like luckily the victim is expected to live, like he'll pull through, but we'll keep you updated on our social media. 
Um, once again, our Instagram page, which is where most of our links and stuff are, um, is at objection to the rule, no spaces, no punctuation. Um, but we'll keep you updated on ways you can keep up to date on that story. Um, keep eyes out on how you can support the Asian American community in New York city during this trying time. And, um, like hopefully there's a downward trend with this violence because it's really, it's really disturbing, you know, and nobody deserves that. All right. Thank you so much for that story, Jasmine. Definitely um, something we all need to all look out for um, ways to help the Asian community and just be more mindful of what they're dealing with. We're going to go right into our first music break of today. Um, and the first track comes from Lucky Day featuring Yeba and it's called How Much Can a Heart Take? We'll be right back. You've been channeling energy, sending it to me. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for our national news segment. Emily, what do you have for us today? All righty. Sure thing. So this story um, comes from a February 27th New York Times article by Michael Wines 
titled In State Houses, Stolen Election Myth Fuels a GOP Drive to Rewrite Rules. Uh, the article is very in-depth, and I'm leaving out a bunch of different like little pieces and nuances of the story. So anyone who is interested, I do recommend that you check out the article yourself and read it in full. Um, alrighty, so the article explains, quote, led by loyalists who, embra- who embraced former President Donald J. Trump's baseless claims of a stolen election, Republicans in state legislatures nationwide are mounting extraordinary efforts to change the rules of voting and representation and enhance their own political clout. At the top of those efforts is a slew of bills raising new barriers to casting votes, particularly the mail ballots that Democrats flocked to in the 2020 election. But other measures go well beyond that, including tweaking electoral college and judicial election rules for the benefit of Republicans, clamping down on citizen-led ballot initiatives, and outlawing private donations that provide resources for administering elections, which were crucial to the smooth November vote. Quote, the National Republican Party joined the movement this past week by setting up a committee on election integrity to scrutinize state election laws, echoing similar moves by Republicans in a number of state legislatures. So Republican efforts to restrict voting is nothing new. Fuck civil rights, right guys? Um, Quote, Republicans have long thought, sometimes quietly, occasionally out loud, that large turnouts, particularly in urban areas, favor Democrats and that Republicans benefit when fewer people vote. Uh, But politicians and scholars alike say that this moment feels like a dangerous plunge into uncharted waters. The avalanche of legislation also raises fundamental questions about the ability of a minority of voters to exert majority control on American politics, with Republicans winning the popular vote in just one of the last eight presidential elections, but filling six of the nine seats in the Supreme Court. Uh, The Republican efforts to restrict voting are often in the name of thwarting voter fraud, as it's called, something that, quote, multiple studies have shown barely exists. Uh, More than that, quote, proposals in many states have little or nothing to do with the off-stated goal of making voting, quote, more secure. Quote, Georgia Republicans would sharply limit early voting on Sundays when many Black voters follow church services with souls to the polls, bus rides to cast ballots. On Friday, a state Senate committee approved bills to end no-excuse absentee voting and automatic voter registration at motor vehicle offices. Iowa's legislation passed this past week uh, also shortens the windows. Oh, pardon me. I think I combined a couple of things there. But anyway, Iowa's legislation also shortens the windows to apply for absentee ballots and petition for satellite polling places deployed at popular locations like college campuses and shopping centers. Bills in some states to outlaw private donations to fund elections are rooted in the unproven belief, popular on the right, that contributions in 2020 were designed to increase turnout in Democratic strongholds. Uh, There's a quote here from Lauren Groh Wargo, who's the chief executive of the voting advocacy group Fair Fight Action, that says, quote, the issues are particularly stark because fresh restrictions would disproportionately hit minorities just as the nation is belatedly reckoning with a racist past. But hey, it's not all bad news. Uh, the Brennan Center for Justice, a liberal leaning, oh, quote, 
Uh, it's a liberal leaning law and justice institute at New York University counts 253 bills in 43 states to, that seek to tighten voting rules. At the same time, though, 704 bills have been introduced with provisions to improve access to voting. Um, so I thought that was an interesting thing to note for sure. Uh, but there is definitely bad news. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Um, on Tuesday, so that would be March 2nd, the Supreme Court heard a case on the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Uh, in a separate New York Times article by Adam Liptak, the author calls this court this the court's, quote, most important voting rights case in almost a decade. Unfortunately, the author thinks that the court, quote, seemed ready on Tuesday to uphold two election restrictions in Arizona and to make it harder to challenge all sorts of limits on voting around the nation. Uh, but anyway, back to the original article I was uh, ref- quoting from, there are some other very scary and very bad things to worry about. Um, quote, Republicans in Georgia, which Mr. Biden won by roughly 12,000 votes, lined up this week behind a state Senate bill that would require vote-by-mail applications to be made under oath with some requiring an additional ID and a witness signature. Quote, one Arizona Republican has has proposed legislation that would allow state lawmakers to ignore the results of presidential elections and decide themselves which candidate would receive the state's electoral votes. Also, quote, in New Hampshire, where Republicans took full control of the legislature in November, the party chairman, Stephen Stepanik, Stepanik, has indicated he backs a gerrymander of the state's congressional map to guarantee that at least one of the state's two Democrats in the U.S. House would not win re-election. Elections have consequences, he told the news outlet Seacoast Online. He did not respond to a request for comment from the Times. Uh, One final quote from the article. Uh, Quote, the typical response by a losing party in a functioning democracy is that they alter their platform to make it more appealing. Kenneth Mayer, an expert on voting and elections at the University of Wisconsin-Madison said, here the response is to try to keep people from voting, that it's dangerously anti-democratic. So yes, uh, welcome back to Emily's House of Horrors. Uh, This shit is very scary. (laughs) But in another way, you can sort of look at it, hopefully, as the gasping breaths of like this dying platform, this um, politically political view, um, lashing out in fear, but it's really scary. And it will take a lot of on the grounds work to counterbalance all these efforts to restrict access to voting. Um, And you got to stay vigilant. Got to stay aware. You brought up so many good points, um, Emily, about how this is a historical problem. And I feel like the fact that we're still dealing with this just shows the division in this country about, you know, whose voice really matters and putting all of these barriers into hearing from the people who they need to serve. Um, it's a strategic, it's some strategic bullshit that's been there forever, but it just sucks that it's still an issue you know, in this day. And we almost believe, you know, we're almost back to sort of believing this democracy that we've been trying to maintain. But then you hear stories like this and it's like, whose democracy are we defending? Like exactly what are we standing for? And, um, you know, just putting more barriers to people getting their voices across. It's, It's awful. It's very upsetting. Yeah, it's really, I would like to believe, like you say, Emily, that this is a sign of 
people that have always intended to keep power for themselves and don't truly believe in the ideas of democracy, or they think only certain people should count that they're lashing out and they're scared. But, you know, like whether it's an animal or a human being, sometimes they're they're the most dangerous when they're lashing out out of fear or when they feel like they're threatened. Like between um, like a lot of right-wing extremist people and different groups. And then you have people that maybe they don't have a physical weapon, but they're doing all these shitty, dirty things to like play, like to rig the system. It's really, you know, the determination to do like whatever to cheat. It's really like, it knows no bounds, you Mm -hmm. know? So I really wish that people who claim to be on the other side of that will rise to the occasion and wake up to the fact that it's you're not gonna win by pointing out like their hypocrisy or being like see how we follow the rules and they don't like that's not we're so far beyond that it's not even funny you know like when people are willing to do these things and be so cutthroat you have to like fight fire with fire. And it's very depressing that there's not enough people that seem to be willing to do that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it it, for me too. It also highlights, I I mean, that statistic that like, you know, only one Republicans won the popular vote in the last eight elections. Is that what I said? I just want to make sure. Um, But then it, but then it has filled six of the nine, like two thirds of the seats in the Supreme court. And that's, it's undemocratic, like at its core, exactly like that um, one person I quoted said, and it goes back to you to just the structure of the electoral college. Like it really is structured to provide some people with a disproportionate amount of power over others in a society where hypothetically we're all supposed to have equal rights, you know, under the law. Um, and it's, it's very, it's very scary. And it, it's not just scary. It's like, it feels like you're being gaslit by these people in power who claim to say like democracy, democracy, like America, like you love this country where it's like, they clearly wish they li- like are trying to create a world where none of the things they pretend that they care, they, they hold up in value are actually um, standing, right? Like, you know, you can't walk around with the American flag and then, um, well, I guess you can, but like, you know, and claim that you love democracy, right? And you hate voter fraud when like you're sort of creating voter, like a fraud, fraudulent system um, at its core uh, or trying to, um, you know, structure one in a way that benefits you as an individual. It's, it's pretty upsetting. <laughs> yeah, it's very, um, it's true to the founding of this country as we know it. You know, it's very, you know, it from the very beginning of what we now call the United States, it was never about everyone having a voice. It was about mm-hmm. only certain people that were considered good enough or valuable mm-hmm. enough being able to do it. And they're upholding that very American tradition. You know, so I right. really, I really hope that, you know, people understand like, we need a much more like radical change than tweaks because it's not a bug it's a feature of the way the system works it's true yeah the only people who used to be able to vote were white landowning men right 
<laughs> it's like in all things that this country still at its heart, you know, those are the people that still have the most. Yeah. And it's like, they will, the it's, it's almost, it's similar to like the way the rules around who is considered white can be shifted around in order to make mm. sure that they're still the majority. Like there's people who are not considered white back in the day that are now considered white mm. people. And that that always works to keep certain other racialized groups like at bay or in like a defensive or vulnerable position. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, you can expand like, okay, it used to be rich white men over a certain age. And then it's like, oh, well, if you, you don't, you don't have to be that rich as long as you're this or that, like you can vote. It's like making people, it's like giving people the illusion of becoming more inclusive when that's not really what's happening. You're just kind of moving the goalposts, shifting things around to look more open, but ultimately like the root structure has not changed. I was just going to, you know, say what I always say when we have these stories about how this country was founded in a way to keep certain people in power, you know, nothing's really changed. Um, I'm still on the fence with my coming back to belief in democracy and what this country stands for. But stories like this, like I said in the beginning, shows you the divide is real. And when these measures are strategically placed, it's just more of the same. It's just kind of sustaining what was already there. And it won't be until, you know, this system is reconstructed, you know, no more Band-Aids, but actually redesigned to reflect the times that we actually see what democracy really is. Um, and that will be the test, right? That will be the real test if we are one day capable of deciphering the bullshit that we've all been uh, forced to maintain to actually live in the ideals that were written uh, way back before this country even knew how to do the things that they promised. So, so be it. But yeah, thank you for that story. Uh, definitely a great recap and a good discussion. We're going to go ahead and take our next music break. Uh, the next track is a classic throwback from one of my favorites, Nima Simone. This is Misunderstood. We'll be right back. Baby, you understand me now. If sometimes you see that I'm mad. Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel? When everything goes wrong, you see some bad. But I'm just a soul whose intentions are good. Oh, Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood. You know, sometimes, baby, I'm so carefree. With a joy that's hard to hide And then sometimes again it seems that all I have is worry And then you're bound to see my other side But I'm just a soul whose intentions are good Oh Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood I never mean to take it out on you 
problems And I get more than my share But that's one thing I never mean to do Cause I love you like anyone Sometimes I find myself alone regretting some little foolish thing Some simple thing that I have done I'm just a soul whose intentions are good Oh Lord Please don't let me be misunderstood Understood. I try so hard, so please don't let me be misunderstood. Hello, this is Jasmine. Just as a reminder, you can follow us on social media. We have a Facebook page and we also have an Instagram account. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram page is at objection to the rule, all one word, no spaces, and again, no punctuation. Thanks, and here's Teresa. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn, and now for our international news segment. Uh, this story comes from the New York Times. The author is Yan Zhang, and the title is Without Backpackers to Pick Them, Crops, crops Rot by the ton in Australia. So the pandemic has exposed the shaky labor foundation of Australia's agriculture industry, spurling calls for an immigration overhaul. The pandemic has disrupted the rhythms of labor and migration worldwide. In Western Europe, for example, borders are tightened last year, keeping out seasonal workers from Eastern Europe. But in isolated Australia, the pandemic has delivered a particularly sharp blow, exposing the unstable foundation of its agriculture industry, a growing $54 billion a year Goliath that for years has been underpinned by the work of young transient foreigners. Measures to keep the coronavirus out of the country have left Australia with a deficit of 26,000 farm workers, according to the nation's top agriculture association. As a result, Tens of millions of dollars in crops have gone to waste from coast to coast. This enormous destruction has fueled rising calls for Australia to rethink how it secures farm labor, with many pushing for immigration overhaul that would give agricultural workers a pathway to permanent residency. The current system was never intended to be permanent solution to farmers' decade-long labor struggles. But as the industry expanded and fewer Australians were willing to pick crops, the so-called backpacker program offered a lifeline. Since 2005, the government has steered young travelers to farm by offering extensions of working holiday visas from one year to two for those who have completed three months of work in agriculture. Backpackers, as they call them, can earn extensions by working in other industries like construction or mining, but 90% do so through farm work. In a normal year, more than 200,000 backpackers would come to Australia, making up 80% of the country's harvest workforce, according to industry groups. Now, there are just 45,000 in the country, according to government data. Attempts to fill the labor shortage with unemployed Australians have been largely unsuccessful. 
Only 350 applicants signed up for federal government programs that offer subsidies of $6,000 to Australians or about 4,600 to work in rural areas. A last-ditch proposal by one state government to use prison labor was shelved after an uproar from farmers. So the federal government has flown in workers from nearby Pacific islands, which have largely avoided the pandemic. It's part of an existing program that is one of Australia's main source of aid to the Pacific. With border restrictions in place, the arrangements have sometimes been convoluted. In January, after months of urging from the federal government, the industry groups in Victoria agreed to take 1,500 Pacific Islanders. They must first quarantine for two weeks on an island of Tasmania before being flown to Victoria. In exchange, 330 Tasmanians stranded overseas will be able to return through Victoria's quarantine hotels. For years, industry groups have been pushed for the dedicated agriculture visa, but the idea has repeatedly run into obstacles. The last time it was seriously raised in 2018, it caused an alarm to Pacific Island nations that said it could divert money away from their workers. Some academics and such uh, said that such a move could diminish Australia's influence in the region, allowing China to make greater inroads. The idea was quietly shelved. A dedicated stable workforce would benefit not just farmers. It could also reduce abuses that have come become rampant under the temporary labor system, according to researchers and unions. There are hopes that addressing these problems could help bring some Australians back into the industry. Farmers talk about changing how the industry is viewed, starting in school, and about technological advancements that would make it less labor-intensive. The Australian Workers' Unions has lodged a challenge with the Fair Work Commission to mandate an industry minimum wage. It believes that wage floor... It believes that a wage floor would reduce the likelihood of underpayment and encourage a more local workforce. But these potential solutions, as well as changes in immigration rules, are years off if they ever happen. Right now, farmers are contending with the national borders that were closed in March of 2020 and are unlikely to reopen in 2020 until 2022. So that is the story. Um, a very interesting look at how the agriculture industry and um, international relations is kind of an uncharted territory in in a lot of countries um, across the world, but specifically in Australia. You know, its geographical location puts it uh, very at a greater distance than a lot of other places where migrants can come easily and, you know, move into other regions and cities and things of that nature. But it's also interesting to know that, you know, after all of these years, it's the first time that it's really coming to light that these laws about how to help these people who come in to do this work have not been extended, have not been looked over. Um, And, you know, uh, migrant workers come from everywhere. This is not just an Australian issue. If this is just the one we're talking about today, but I definitely think it's interesting to see that, you know, they're really struggling right now. And I see, I think we will all see in the harvest that will come in this year and next that many issues like this, um, require much more attention, especially when we have borders closed, people cannot move across the world the way they were. I think that this is an industry that has been somewhat, uh, forgotten about. And I'm hoping that, you know, with the regulations of funding that come out uh, with the new bills and everything that is going on right now in the U.S., that these sort of practices can be also, you know, um, 
used in other countries where they have a large influx of migrant workers in this industry. I I think it's really interesting to hear how food systems work in different places Um, because it does, and the, the things that are the same and the things that are different around the world, right? Like the, the migrant labor issue, um, which I mean, it isn't surprising just because of the way, you know, farming works, it works in seasons, right? It's, it is seasonal labor to a certain degree. Um, but it was interesting. Did you say, so the, the workforce is, is largely young travelers, Teresa, in, in Australia. Is that what you were saying? Yes. A lot of the yeah. workforce in the agriculture industry is brought over um, in somewhat of an aid program from the smaller Pacific Islands. And this is something that's been going on for a long time. You know, this isn't new. Um, But yeah, this year, obviously, with all of the restrictions, they're getting much less people traveling to that region of the world. It's interesting that the sense that it's it's turned into an aid program there were in the U.S. at least it's it's much more of like an, it sounds, I mean, I obviously I don't know the nuances of the way the Australian system works, but it's, it's, it can be very abusive in the U S in terms of um, low pay for, for extremely hard labor with like no aid <laughs> as far as what I, my understanding of a lot of migrant labor. Um, so that's really interesting. And of course, but of course, you know, it's, it's not, I think a lot of us take for granted the stability of our food systems um, so it is, it's a bit of a wake up call, you know, in some ways to learn that, you know, not the, nothing's permanent. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was listening to a story, um, I think on NPR the other day, and it was talking about how that, um, cold snap that happened in Texas is really going to make a huge, um, shift in our grocery prices. Um, you know, because all those crops are ruined. And this is something that we may not see, you know, they're saying Americans as a whole are already paying more for their groceries because of all the issues that we had with COVID. Um, But things like this, you know, they're, they're kind of like swept under the rug. The idea that this industry kind of sustains itself basically with migrant workers, like the agriculture industry as a whole uh, is very dependent on that. And you know, I think a lot of us don't really pay attention to it because it doesn't hit home, but it will. It will eventually when we start not having access and things start to get, we feel the strain of not having the same resources available to us with ease. Yeah, we even like there was a story not too long ago we did about the strike up at um, in the Bronx and it was food workers. Like yeah. they weren't, I don't think they were people yeah. that were literally in fields, but they were um, kind of at the beginning end of the food supply chain and they didn't want to give them people a raise. It's like they had people that were getting COVID, getting sick, like exposing themselves to great risk, you know, and like there's people who they are literally out in a field and you have people telling them like they can't go to the bathroom, like just ridiculous. And I really do think the fact that so many of us in the quote unquote Western world and like I would put Australia in that are very divorced from where our food comes from. Like we aren't all divorced from it, but a lot of people are that sometimes people get so caught up in like, oh, like, well, if you only eat, if you don't eat animals, then it's cruelty free. And that's not how this works because there's human beings that have to get 
the vegetables, like the fruits, like whatever. And those people are often treated terribly, you know, and just taken for granted that they can just be replaced. So we don't have to respect you or whatever. And that's, that's also cruelty. Absolutely. And um, that happens worldwide too. And, you know, whatever you think of the, the like USDA organic label, if there's, if you're concerned about that, another good label to look for, or another, a label to look for would be fair trade um, on the food that you're getting. If you're concerned about um, the, the labor practices and like a lot of products like chocolate that's imported. Um, it's a, it's a, some, something to note if you, if some, if people out there are trying to become more um, trying to get more conscious about also coffee. food access. Coffee yep, is a coffee. huge fair yep, trade yep. industry. Yep. Yeah, for sure. I didn't watch the whole clip, but I saw something floating around on Twitter recently of a cocoa farmer or someone who worked in like harvesting the plant that chocolate comes from and he had never had chocolate before because mm-hmm. they were so alienated from like the final product. It's like people are just using you like you're part of a machine. But then yeah. you don't even get to fully enjoy like the fruit of your own work and you're not paid fairly for it. Yeah, it's I, I used to work for this fair trade um, like tea tea shop. That was really I, I loved working there. And the owner had was very big on fair trade, obviously, <laughs> there in the, the style of the store. But one thing I remember every Halloween was a really big deal because of the way chocolate is um, kind of, you know, the chocolate industry often or would have often have like uh, child labor and there's sort of like that real like disgusting disconnect between like all these children enjoy these chocolates in the U S where like the labor where that chocolate was produced um, was, was abusive in a lot of ways. So like looking out for fair trade chocolate, especially like around Halloween when there's so much of that happening was always like a big campaign that, that she was working on. So something to keep in the back of your mind. Absolutely. So hopefully there will be some adjustments to how their immigration laws uh, protect these migrant workers. And um, hopefully not too much of the harvest has been rotted and forfeited because of these issues. All right. So finally, for our good news story, Emily, what you got for us today? All right. So uh, my good news story today comes from a February 24th article by Andy Corbley from the Good News Network. And the article is titled Pollution in the Mississippi River has plummeted since the 1980s, new study says. The article explains that a new study from Louisiana State University was able to look at more than 100 years of river, river, uh, river chemistry data Uh, because people have been testing the water of the Mississippi since 1909. The data showed that the river became filthier, quote, became, quote, filthier and filthier until 1980, when the effects brought about by the 1972 Clean Water Act started to kick in. Uh, The Clean Water Act mandated an advanced sewage treatment, which greatly reduced the fecal coliform bacteria, gross, um, from the dumping of raw sewage, also gross. Uh, The author of the study, Eugene Turner, is quoted as saying that the bacteria is, quote, 1% of what they were before the 80s. Um, Oxygen levels have gone up, sulfur dioxide levels have fallen, and pH levels have balanced. 
and, quote, lead pollution could almost be described as non-existent. Such was the effect of this, the Clean Water Act industrial runoff restrictions. They're 1,000 times lower than they were in 1979. In some places, they're 2,000 times lower. Uh, in 2011, environmental agencies actually stopped surveying the Mississippi for lead because the minuscule amounts in the water remained the same for a period of about 10 years, end quote. Uh, Eugene Turner writes in the study, quote, all of these changes occurred over decades. They were not accomplished quickly after a few masterly reconfigurations of technology or rules, but through sustained attention at many locations, one smokestack or sewerage plant at a time. End quote. Um, so we've talked about how much we appreciate good environmental news on the show before, since it feels like we've constantly, you know, we're constantly facing existential planetary demise. Um, and I particularly enjoy stories like these because they show that our legislative legislative wins, which often sometimes feel small and insignificant in comparison to like the doomsday level threats that we're dealing with, but they really can have a significant long term positive impact. Um, you know, if we just, you know, that's that steadiness um, and dedication. Well, yeah, I know Mississippi needs some good news, especially now because they're ha they're having some similar issues as Texas. Right, right, yes, yeah, absolutely, and not getting the same um, news coverage really to the same degree as Texas either. I know, and it's such a it's a heavily it's a very black state. Mm -hmm. Like there's people in Jackson that have not had access to safe, clean water in a very long time, so. Mm -hmm. uh, this is good news about the river for sure, but we'll put up some links on our social media about like how you can reach out and help the people of Mississippi um, who aren't so far benefiting from the cleaner river, um, but still need some help right now. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much for giving us that good news story, Emily. And that's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on the Radio Free Brooklyn app, on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, on Spotify, or anywhere you can find iTunes podcasts. Please stay locked into the station to hear more Brooklyn media. We're going to play you out with our final track of the day. This is The Love Movement by Tribe Called Quest. We'll see you next week. Bye. 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 So many people... Right now I'm motivated to do bullshit for some bull ass reasons. But we about to put it inside of a love perspective like love. We do it all for the love, y'all. Yeah, we do it all for the love, y'all. Whether white, black, Spanish ain't a thug, y'all. We do it, we give it all for the love, y'all. We just give it it all for the love, y'all. We do it, we do it all for the love, y'all. We in the party, put your Love getting down and I love a cool breeze. Love seeing checks from record companies. Love, love, and love, cause I love what I do. And we do a thing for the one I took. And the rest of the country, cause we're from there too. Making sure love is given when I get it from you. Everybody, we regulate the party and shit. Come on. Love it when I get a little rugged with it. Love, the circumstance to make my dough flow right. Love rocking mics, plus the ill style nice. She does it real good, but love to make it more better. Got me kinda open in the DK sweater. Love when my people's come home from jail biz. Really love women, and I really love kids. Love tight clubs where the music just bang. Can't be 
ass women or a shorty got bangs. Loving it, yeah, yeah, I'm loving it, yeah. Love a woman when she got a tight outfit. Come on, outfit, mean an outlook and disposition. Uh. You love it when it does a love composition. She love peanut butter and jelly on wheat. Wildin' out, making hot shit to hot beats from Ohio to Poughkeepsie, from Phoenix to NC, from Cali to Love it when the pressure falls right on me. Uh, love it when God keeps on overlooking. Do a tight show so promoters keep booking. We do it all for the love, y'all. Yeah, we do it all for the love, y'all. We get the paper, but it's still for the love, y'all. From the heart inside of the heart, y'all. We do it, we do it all for the love, y'all. For real, for the love, for the love, y'all. All my people's in the ghettos for the love, y'all. All my people's all around for the love, y'all. If you live in New York City and run for either fun or exercise, here's a way to learn something about the city while you're getting in your workout. City Running Tours is now offering neighborhood running tours designed with locals in mind. New York City takes pride in the diversity and character of its neighborhoods, and these unique running tours offer an opportunity to learn the history of a neighborhood and get personal recommendations from your guide. Choose from tours of 23 neighborhoods, including the East Village, the Upper West Side, Bushwick, Long Island City, and Roosevelt Island. For more information about the running tours and to see the list of neighborhoods and full tour schedule, check out their website at www.cityrunningtours.com slash New York City and check out a live tour every Saturday at 10 a.m. on Instagram.com forward slash city running tours.